who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you? Oh, I was going too far. Not by might, not by power, but by... My spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I was getting overly anxious. We're currently, we have been going through the eight visions at the beginning of Zechariah. And we are now at the halfway point. And as we've seen these first four visions, we've seen this recurring theme over and over again. The prophet is shown a vision The angel then interprets that vision. Uh, The prophet will interact as appropriate. And then finally we see the the vision being made clear. The first four visions brought us a message of God's promise to protect, to bless, and to forgive his people. To receive them into his service. Now that we're at the halfway point, we have this point of transition as we move from one set of visions to the next sets of visions. And as Zechariah is awoken here, he beholds a lampstand that's sitting before him. And with the lampstand, we see several other elements. What are these elements? What is the lampstand? What is the bowl, and so on and so forth, and these trees, these olive trees. Some see the lampstand as being the menorah that we had in the temple. There was, in the the temple, as we go into not quite the holies of holies, but the place right before, there was this lampstand. Uh, It was a typical menorah. It had a single uh, candle in the middle with six offshooting branches. Yet there are some differences. Here we also see a bowl. Uh, Above the bowl are some stems. Uh, These are likely uh, feeding oil from the bowl into the lampstands. These are channels of sorts. But we also see these two olive trees. What are we to make of these two olive trees? One on each side of the lampstand. And we're really, I'm not going to touch on those today. We'll see those in coming weeks. But we see that Zechariah is confronted with this somewhat stunning image. He comes as one waking out of sleep. uh, And you can imagine what it's like to be asleep. You're sitting there with your eyes closed. It's dark. He opens his eyes. He sees a golden lampstand. It's shining. It's radiant. It's majestic. It's beautiful. But how are we to understand this lampstand? Even Zechariah, as we'll see, asked, what does this mean? And as we go through the rest of Scripture, as we see lampstands talked about, we see that it is predominantly talked about in three different ways. 
Lampstands at times signify the temple. At times it signifies God's saving presence. And at times it signifies God's people. So we're going to consider these three things today. Our three points being the light of the temple, the light of God's presence, and the light of the people. Let's begin with the first. Could this be the light of the temple? Zechariah, who was a priest himself, uh, surely would have leapt to this conclusion. First, we can assume he would have known about the menorah. He would have known about its place in the temple uh, ritual, as it were. There was in the morning and in the evening a priest who would come in, who would trim the wicks, who would replenish the oil, so that the menorah, the candles, would continue to shine forth their light. Zechariah would have known this, and it would have made sense in the context of what he's writing, because he's writing about the rebuilding of the temple. The people have returned from exile to Jerusalem, and they're supposed to be rebuilding the city. And a big part of that was the rebuilding of the temple. But in spite of this, instead of Zechariah going, oh yeah, okay, so this is talking about the temple, what is his response? He questions he wonders. He, he literally asks a question. He says, what are these things? What are these, my Lord? Why would he respond in this way? Well, I think this is largely because there's different things going on. This doesn't look just like the old temple uh, menorah. There's this bowl, which is on top. There were these seven channels filtering oil down. Uh, but all that aside... I think we get to learn just for a moment here a good, basic principle. Zechariah wasn't sure. So what did Zechariah do? He asked. I'm not sure what this means. Will you tell me what these things mean? Isn't this a great example? Sometimes we go to scripture and we go, well, what does this mean? And what are we to do? We're to ask. Lord, what does this mean? John Calvin puts it this way. The Lord will supply us also with understanding when we confess that his mysteries are hid from us. And when conscious of our want of knowledge, we flee to him and implore him not to speak in vain, but to grant to us the knowledge of his truth. Zechariah is wondering, and so he asks, and this is a call I think for us to ask as well, what is the temple, if, or excuse me, what is the lampstand? If we see all these things in scripture, if we see God's temple, his presence, and his people, then what is this lampstand here representing? Well, interestingly, the angel doesn't tell him. The answer seems somewhat like he's answering a different question. Zechariah asks one question, what is the lampstand? And he says, uh, well, Zerubbabel needs to know that it's not by his might or strength or power, but it's by the Spirit of God. And I imagine if I was Zechariah, I'd have been like, but I, I didn't ask that question. <laughs> I was asking what the lampstand represented. Well, what is going on here? Uh, Zerubbabel, because we haven't heard his name yet, is the leader of the exile, uh, the return, I should say, community. Uh, and his job was to rebuild the temple. He was this political leader. 
And the angel says, you, this political leader needs to learn it's not by your might, it's not by your power, it's not by your own physical strength that he can do anything, but it's about on trusting God's spirit alone. Zerubbabel was charged with rebuilding the temple and he was failing in his duty. We know that Zechariah is emphasizing that the temple needs to be built. But the people are in a position of weakness. It was hard enough at this time to even make a living, let alone rebuild the temple. And Haggai, who is also prophesying at the same time, tells the people why. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people had returned and they'd become preoccupied with making their own living. They'd been preoccupied with building their own houses. And what had God done with their efforts? He says, I blew it away as the wind. Because you weren't concerned with me. You were concerned with yourself. And you can imagine in this city, you've been in exile, you've been in Babylon, you've now returned uh, to the home of your forefathers. You're there and nothing is going right. You can't make a living for yourself. You can't build your own house. Certainly the wall and and the temple was not going along well. This would have led to doubts. Does God have strength? Does he have might? Does he even desire to help us? And as they lost hope, they fell into sin. So they decided to make the best of things. They were going back to living even as the Gentiles around them lived. But even the Gentiles around them were hostile to them. They didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want to see the temple and its practices come back. Jerusalem, who had long persecuted, and I, I believe in their minds, this region, who was not friendly to the Gentiles. And so in light of this, in light of the attitudes of the Gentiles, uh, even just to get a small picture of what's going on, we see that the Persian governor sees the rebuilding of the temple, and he doesn't like it. So what does he do? He appeals to Darius. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. And he says, look, they need to stop what they're doing. Now, if you remember, it wasn't Darius who sent the Israelites back. It was Cyrus. And Darius has since overthrown him. Surely Darius would side with his own governor. Zerubbabel, as the leader of Israel at this time, had no strength in himself. And a beautiful picture of the principle Zechariah is teaching us here is found in what happens next. In this story of Israel return, when Darius hears the words of the Persian governor, he has the archives searched. And as the archives are searched, he has the uh, order of Cyrus for the people to go back and for them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. So what does Darius do? Well, Darius orders this Persian governor 
that he is to supply all the money and materials for the building of the temple. Not only that, he is to supply all the animals that are needed to start back up the sacrifice in the temple. And if this Persian governor does not do this, he will be killed. He will be killed for his failure to comply. Now, what is our principle that is here for us? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This message, as it were, is for Zerubbabel. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And it's not that you have to rest and trust on yourself. It's not that you have to build your own houses and then build the temple of the Lord. He says, I'm going to take care of it. I am able to overcome all obstacles. I can overrule kings. I can overrule governors. I can direct the affairs of men. The temple was to be a light. It was to be the place where for Israel at that time and even for the world, they were to find assurance of forgiveness of sins. It was a pale failure, a reflection of that which was to come. But it was important at that time. And God was able to put those things back in place to allow the the temple to shine forth. That forgiveness of sins, even in spite of the people, even in spite of the enemies that were around them. Zerubbabel, in his time of need, needed to be prayerful and obedient, knowing that God is able to supply all things. Paul says it this way in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This principle is still true for us today. We no longer have the temple, right? In a lot of ways, as we go through this narrative, it's, it's a story, and we're telling the, the this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. And we may go, well, okay, that's well and good. It's a nice story, and... Um, Maybe I lost you in there for a little bit because I was going on about these uh, details. And maybe as we get to the the punchline, as it were, of, oh, look how God used the Persian emperor or governor and had to pay all these things. And we go, oh, that's real neat and that's real cool, right? And we kind of relish in that. But do we really learn the lesson of it? Do we really learn the lesson that is here We live in a time where I think we are feeling more and more subject to the governing authorities about what we can say and how we can worship. We're living in a time where it's hard to stand up and say, I think this is sin and this is wrong. If we go into our world and we say, you know what, you're living together as man and wife, but you're not married. And that's sinful. That's contrary to God's word. What does the world say to us? If we go and say, you know what? You're going to work. And you're, you're working. You're getting paid for an eight-hour day, but you're only working four hours. And the rest of the day, you're on Facebook and you're playing games on your phone. And that's not right. What does the world say to us? 
When we call sin, sin, the world looks at us and says, you archaic, ignorant people. Who are you to say anything? You hypocrites. We, we look at a society that says abortion is okay, and, and we look at that and we say, the government says it's okay, and how can this ever change? And yet look what God, the God of our God, the God of Zechariah, look what he did in calling his people back in faithfulness. And I wonder if our faith has grown weak and it has become small. And we, even in our minds as we say that we have a powerful and strong God, the way we practically live it out is that he is not that powerful and he's not that strong and that he really cannot affect change. And we slowly surrender bits and pieces of who we are as followers of Jesus and we give them to the world and we say, you know what? He's probably not that powerful. You know what? He probably can't affect this change. You know what? I I probably shouldn't speak truth to you because I'm worried about how it will make me look. And we surrender bits and pieces of who we are and who we are called to be. And certainly Israel had done the very same thing. And Zechariah calls them and, and the angel calls them through Zechariah to say, no, my church, his temple is meant to be a light meant to be a light for his truth, for his grace, for his mercy. But not only is the lampstand compared to the temple in scripture, it's also compared to the light of God's own presence. In a way, we can't remove this from the the temple either, because what was the temple? The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt and as he dwelt there he brings blessings of grace several weeks ago we looked in our sunday school class about how uh, the ark of the covenant for a while resided with this family and as it resided there well the family was blessed beyond all measure and why was it blessed because god's presence was there 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine says this, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Throughout the Old Testament, we see how this is true. Isaiah, Jeremiah, others talk about how God brings light into darkness, and he does this through the one who is called Emmanuel. And we go into the New Testament, we see John 8 Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus carries over this menorah mission in witnessing to the living God as a light in this world. This is the role God sent him to fulfill. So if the lampstand signifies God's presence, what does this mean? It means that we have been promised that God would come, that he would dwell among among us. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus Christ, don't we? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the light. 
We see this through his spirit-anointed ministry. At Jesus' baptism, what did he receive? He didn't receive armies to come at his beck and call. He didn't receive earthly authority. No, what did he receive? He received the spirit coming down in the form of a dove. He was not equipped with worldly office, with riches. He was blessed with the spirit. He lived his life in obedience to that spirit, conquering sin and death, and now ruling in heaven as Lord of all. Brothers and sisters, God's presence is meant to be a light for us. In a, sem- in a sense, the temple was just a temple. And in a sense, this church is just a church. It's just four walls. Maybe, I don't know how you can, how do you count the walls here? But it's just walls connected to metal framing on a concrete base. God's presence is meant to be a light for us. We can't rely on ourselves. We have to rely on the spirit of God. Zerubbabel could not rely on himself. He had to rely on the spirit of God. Do you trust God to take you out of darkness into light? Here's the point. We at all at some point were in darkness. Maybe some of us are still in darkness. And there's nothing we can do to bring light to the darkness. There's nothing we can say. There's nothing that we can do in our own actions. We were dead in our sins, in our trespasses. And Jesus Christ comes as our example. And he brings light and life to those who were dead. God's presence is a beautiful and wonderful thing here. But third and finally, we see the light of the people of God. Yes, it can be the light of the temple. It can be the light of God's presence. But the people are also called to be a light. We see this again in Scripture. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Matthew calls us, or in Matthew, I should say, we are called the light of the world. And this is true throughout time. In the Old Testament, Israel was meant to be that light. And in the New Testament era and on to us, the church is called to be that light. Interestingly, I think at times we may say that Jesus' earthly ministry ended at his resurrection. I don't believe that's true. In a sense, I believe his earthly uh, ministry ended at Pentecost. When his last promise came to his fulfillment, when he sent the Holy Spirit to us. And how did he come at that first encounter? but as a light, as flames, tongues of flames on their head, and they were to go forth out into the world and be a light for Jesus Christ. He enables us to persevere in a hostile world. The Spirit comes and he protects and he guides his church to be a light. We all grow up singing the song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 
Hide it under a bushel? Well, we always do this, right? Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Don't let, let Satan shh it out, right? Whatever you do, blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. This is what he's called us to do. Zechariah for the reformers, for a lot of the reformers in the time of the Reformation, was their favorite book. Reformer after reformer loved this book. And why is that? Because at times they were literally fleeing their lot for their lives, barely escaping the pains of persecution and death. The world at that time was literally trying to destroy them for their faith. I'm about to read you a long quote, but I want you to bear with me. In regards to this passage, one reformer, John Calvin, said this. When we now see things in a despairing condition, let this vision come to our minds. That God is sufficiently able by his own power to help us. When there is no aid from any other So that experience will at length show that we have been preserved in a wonderful manner by his hand alone. Whenever earthly aids fail us, let us remember to rely on God alone. For it is is not by a host or by might that God raises up his church and preserves it in its proper state. But this he does by his spirit, that is by his own intrinsic and wonderful power, which he does not blend with human aids. And his object is to draw us away from the world and to hold us wholly dependent on him. When we, brothers and sisters, are in a despairing condition when there is nothing but despair we should allow this vision to come to our minds that god is sufficient he is able by his own power to rescue us to aid us to draw us away from this world and to make us wholly dependent on him there's a problem in the church today and i think it is this that that we are trying at times to grow the church By our own might, by our own power. And so we redefine the church. Worship becomes entertainment. We package the church so that we can sell it. Look what I have for you. Isn't it beautiful and shiny? Won't it make you feel good? It becomes the chicken soup of the Christian soul, right? We're trying to sell it as that package. And then churches, as they do this, well, if we're going to appeal to the mass market, we should, probably shouldn't say that. No, that's not good. And let's not say that either because I, we don't want to offend them. We want them to buy our book, right? The book's a good book. And maybe they'll get something good out of it. So let's, let's, let's just not say that. No, we're called to rely on God's spirit alone to grow his church. He is the only source of might and power. Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for the salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Without the Spirit, none can come to faith. He goes on in Romans 8 to say, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We cannot be effective in our Christian life, be it in our own salvation or in our work apart from him. We sang today, leaning on the everlasting arms. What arm are you leaning upon? If you are leaning on your own strength or the strength of this world, you will surely fall. I think it's beautiful here that the angel does not give us a definitive answer. He doesn't come and say the lampstand is God's presence. He doesn't come and say the lampstand is God's temple. He doesn't say the lampstand is is representative of God's people and how there to be a light in the world. Because I believe all these things are applicable to this situation. It's not by our own might. It's not by our own strength. But it is by the spirit of God. By his spirit that we find strength. We are to be his temple building where the sacrifice of Christ shines forth, where God's presence can be felt, where where its members shine forth, that presence like the sun. Every Christian is called to be a lampstand, precious to God, humble light bearers. Our goal for each of us is that his church, that his presence, that his people would be glorified through all that we do. Knowing that it's not by our own might, knowing that it's not by our own power. And so we're left with this question, whose light do you want to shine? Whose light do you want to shine? Interestingly, that song, that wonderful, beautiful song, is not very specific, is it? This little light of mine, what is that light? If we were going to make it more complicated, it would probably mess up the rhythm of the song, I'm sure. But maybe it goes something like this. This little mite that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came and redeemed me out of darkness and purchased me into light. I'm going to let it shine. That would probably not work. We'd have to redo the song. But that's the truth. We have to let the gospel shine forth in our life. Not upon our own efforts. Not upon our own efforts, but upon the Spirit of God. Are we telling of his temple? Are we telling of his presence? Are we as his people representing our God? We can't do it on our own. We have to rely on the helper that was given us. And we are to let our light shine forth. I hope, I pray that this is what we do. And and in fact, even as we come here this morning, as we will now transition into this, this table, this table represents our light, doesn't it? It represents the truth, the reality of the hope that was in us of Jesus Christ's body broken, of his blood poured out for us, sinners in need of his grace. Do not hide it. Do not let Satan crush it out of you. Let your light shine forth with the power and the strength 
only found by his spirit. This is my prayer for each of us. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you did indeed give this word to Zerubbabel, that we may know that it's not upon our own efforts, but it's upon Jesus Christ by his representing our Father. Lord, would we rest and trust in him, and would our light shine forth, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you please stand now as we sing the first two verses of Behold the Lamb as we prepare for communion this morning. Thank <laughs> you.